Today I'm reading part two of the series of three in the Easter series. Today's episode is called Calvary. Last week was the Passover supper and next week I'll be doing the resurrection. Calvary. Jesus had been sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate and then tortured and flogged by the cruel guards of King Herod and finally commanded by Pilate to carry his cross to Calvary, or Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Pilate told the centurion to arrange for an escort of guards around Jesus to escort him to the windswept hill. One of the centurion's men put a heavy beam on Jesus' bleeding shoulder as they left the yard and went into the crowded street. The already large crowd continued to grow, some of them followers and friends, others bitter enemies, and yet others who were just confused and angry. Jesus staggered and buckled under the weight of the beam, but he continued to drag it behind him. It was a custom to write a description of the crime committed on a clay plate and fix it to the top of the cross. Pontius Pilate had written an inscription that read, The King of the Jews. An angry voice called out above the crowd, Who wrote that inscription? It's wrong. And one of the temple priests had protested that it should have said that he said he was king of the Jews. However, Pilate had made it very clear to them earlier that he had written that inscription and it had to stay as it was. A few paces further on, Jesus staggered again, but this time fell headlong to the ground. The centurion could see blood flowing freely from Jesus now, and he knew that he had to keep him on his feet. He must not let Jesus die here on the street. A burly, lumbering man, who by the look of his clothing was visiting from some other region, was close by Jesus as he stumbled forward. The centurion called out to the man, You, help him. He's too weak to carry that on his own. The man from Cyrene did what he was told and took the beam and strode on into a journey that was to be immortalised in endless time as a reminder to all of us to not just be onlookers, but to take up our share of the burden of the cross that Jesus carried. When the trek to Calvary was completed, it would take six full hours on Calvary for Jesus to die. Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with some of her companions, reached the flat terrain at the top of Calvary and moved close to the area where Jesus was being nailed to the cross. They could hear the dull clink of hammers beating against metal and bone and timber, mingled with the muffled sound of pain. Mary was also joined there by the disciple John, the other disciples having preferred to hang back from the crowd. Two criminals were already hanging on crosses, either side of the hole where Jesus' pole was to be fixed. But these two men were tied to their crosses, not nailed. Jesus was finally hoisted up and then the pole was crudely dumped into the hole prepared for it. Some time was spent securing its placement so that it stood erect and stable in the rocky ground. A range of utterances 
rushed from the mouths of people standing watching when the cross fell into place and when the nails tugged on the body they were pinned into. Some of the sounds were stifled cries of shock and dismay, while others were more like startled yells of alarm. But overriding these noises was the swelling chant of taunts and slogans coming from the crowd. Then the priests and the leaders of the Jews joined in the chant. You were pretty good at saving others, but you can't even save yourself. If you are the promised one, our Messiah, then come on down from that cross and prove it to us. Weren't you going to pull down our temple and rebuild it again in three days? Well, why not get yourself down from that cross? John winced when he heard Jesus splutter as a soldier tried to push a sponge of sour wine and myrrh into Jesus' mouth. Jesus turned his face aside and refused the swab. The centurion ordered the soldier away and the man joined the other soldiers who were throwing dice to see who was going to keep Jesus' robe. Dust was spitting itself into people's faces on this strangest of days, and gusts of wind blew as storm clouds raced faster than usual across the sky, causing a flickering of sunshine and deep shadow. As Jesus hung there, the criminals beside him were weakening, groaning in their pain. When one of them turned to Jesus, he had earlier on joined the choir of obscenity, picking up the ugly chant with gusto, and now wanted to have his last few words of bravado heard in this dark prison of life and death he had made for himself. They're telling you to get yourself down, but how about us? That would be a real miracle. Even I would believe you. He was delighted with the impression this made on the crowd as they clapped and cheered him. But the man on the other side shouted at him angrily, Are you mad? Don't you even fear God? Don't you know who this is? We deserve to be here, but he doesn't. He has never done a wrong thing. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, will you remember me when you are in your mighty kingdom? Jesus turned his head and looked at him with love, saying, Today you are coming home with me to paradise. John put his arm on Mary's shoulder as she looked on, with tears rolling down her cheeks and a countenance numbed from all expression. John tried to shield Mary from watching, but she wanted to see her son. She remembered tending this little body when he was a baby, that life that was part of her life. It was then that Jesus looked down at his mother, standing next to John. He spoke to her through parched lips. Mother, let him be your son. His head then turned towards John. Mary looked at John and clung onto his arm. Son, let her be your mother. John stood with her and watched her son's life draining from him. As they stood shielding their faces from the biting dust that came in bursts and their eyes from the intermittent dazzle of the sun, they were astonished to see the sun dimmed and the dazzle become a weak gleam. High noon surrendered to a deep darkness, which remained for three full hours. Darkness took over that day. In those last hours, darkness put a stop to some things. Shouts of bravado that just moments ago would have roused bold echoes now hung hollow in the still air, and those mockers that had stood close to the action at the foot of the cross now slid back into the crowd. There were angels suspended within this pool of sadness, 
that was shrouding the desolation below, as heaven waited in eternity, and three hours of darkness passed on earth. Then Satan shot himself like a dart into the one that hung between two criminals on a lonely plateau of the place of the skull. The gigantic spirit of Jesus absorbed the full impact of Satan as all hell's hateful fury hit him. And as every vile thing ever done by countless millions of crippled hearts down through the ages, and for the ages to come, assailed his being. Thunder cracked, and the earth began to shake. The magnitude of this kind of collision, the sum of all sin, hitting the sum of all innocence, shakes all created things. A swirling sea of fear clawed at Jesus and sought to pull him under, but he hoisted his faith above the fear with absolute trust in his Father's love. His great spirit swallowed every vile accusation that Satan hurled at him, and he took them all into himself and locked them safely within his vault of perfect love. He owned it all. He had become the reservoir of all evil in one moment of time, yet he was completely innocent of any one wrong deed. He rallied his strength once more, but another missile of horror careened into him, more powerfully and more deadly than anything before, sweeping over him and submerging him into an impotence and a cancelling of all hope. It was black and fathomless, nothingness. It was like annihilation. This was the cup that he told Father he would accept. But he did not know it would be like this. He was living out the prophetic fulfilment of the first verse of Psalm 22, spoken by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The source of this horrific thought was not Father God. Darkness had assailed the human heart of Jesus, the Son of Man, of the lineage of David. And in an instant, he knew the answer to his own question. He had not been forsaken by his Father. But in his humanity, he had experienced forsakenness for a moment so that no living soul from this time on would ever have to feel forsaken by God again because of their human weakness. From this first verse, and through many of the next 19 verses of that psalm, David prophesied the agony of Jesus as the Son of Man upon the cross. He was also called the Son of David. And there were such utterances in those verses as, A company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And then within the agony of the Son of Man, the resurgent faith of the Son of God declared itself triumphantly in the following verses. The final verse says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried to him. As he hung there, he embraced the tragic weakness of humanity and touched the feelings of forsakenness for every human soul throughout all ages. The vast bank of love that filled heaven filled his heart and went out to a beloved humanity. He looked at the mocking faces standing round the cross and he loved them. He sent his voice into a waiting heaven and cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He had done it. It was finished. 
the plan of salvation could now be put into effect. Jesus had something more to say, but his throat felt parched, and he wanted to speak with strength. I'm thirsty, he croaked out. The centurion, who was ever there on duty, called the soldier over who had shoved the sponge in Jesus' face earlier. Give him the wine sponge, he ordered. The soldier jumped to the command and put the sponge up on a pole to Jesus, who could now say loudly and clearly what had to be said in his last moments. Father, into your hands I now offer my spirit. Then in one last gasp he shouted loudly for all about him to hear, It is finished. Then he died, and he and we were placed securely in the Father's loving hands. Who brought about the death of Jesus? Was it Jesus, his Father, the Jews, the Romans, our sin? All of these played very significant parts, and there are scriptures for each of their roles. But it was finally Jesus who said these words from John chapter 10. I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. At the moment of his death, the cosmos convulsed. An earthquake tore a searing gash into the mountainside, and people were toppled off their feet. Rocks split apart, and the graves and tombs on a nearby hill cracked open. People ran in fear from the place, but they did not know where to go. At that moment there were priests in the temple about to sacrifice the Passover lamb, and when their knife pierced the sacrificial animal, the true lamb of God offered himself on Calvary as the final sacrifice for all sin. The priests were thrown off their feet by the earthquake. The temple shook as huge stones fell from the parapets, and the great veil in the temple proper, which separated the place of God's presence in the holy place, from the rest of the temple was lightning torn from top to bottom. When that veil was torn, it signified that Christ, as both man and God, had not only done away with the separation of mankind from God in the temple, but he had done away with the separation of mankind from God in all the earth. He had gone ahead for all of us to live in his abiding presence. We can now have faith to come confidently into this holy place in our own hearts because of his mercy upon our imperfect humanity and we can receive the power of his life within us to do what is right and pleasing to God. The veil that was torn when Jesus died on the cross on that awesome day was a declaration of the certain hope of our salvation and loving forgiveness and has become the anchor for our souls. The carrion crows were in for a disappointment that day. They were not to know that the next day was the Sabbath and that it was against temple law for dead bodies to be left hanging on a holy day. So all the criminals had to be dead before sundown and taken off their crosses. The two criminals who were tied to their crosses were still a long way from death. So Centurion had his men break their legs so that they would die quickly. The Centurion then had the task of ascertaining whether Jesus was indeed dead. He called over one of his guards. 
Give me a lance, he commanded. He took the shaft and instructed the guard on how to plunge it into Jesus' body under his heart, where the pericardial sac would have amassed body fluids if he had expired. Water gushed out, and the centurion knew the day's work was done. Having witnessed the earthquake and all the things that were done, he knew that this man was indeed the Son of God. The Prince of Darkness now realized that this man's body, which had just been destroyed on Calvary, and which had contained no fault or sin, could not suffer the consequence of sin, which is death, and therefore could no longer be kept captive in the grave of this lower world. As Jesus says through David in the psalm, Psalm 16, You will not let my soul rest in the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Scripture is clear about the consequences of death from sin, right from sin's beginning, when Adam believed the lie that Satan told Eve about them becoming as wise and as powerful as God if they ignored what God said about not eating from the tree of knowledge. That lie made them feel that God was withholding from them the wisdom and power that they could have had without him. They thought that they would be more fulfilled by ignoring what God said rather than by trusting in a heart relationship with him. That sin resulted in the heart of humanity being separated from the life of God and led to their physical and moral corruption and final physical death. It's in Romans chapter 5. All of humanity followed Adam's pathway of the law of sin and death, as it is written. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible describes the process. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's in James chapter 1. In the 40-day fasting and temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Satan had been given free reign to tempt Jesus to the fullest extent. And Scripture declares Jesus as innocent from both sin and its deathly consequence. In Hebrews chapter 4 it says, We know that Jesus had the same temptations we do, though he never once gave way to them and sinned. Jesus was without sin because he trusted his Father with all of his heart, to fulfill his heart's desires. His human desires, which are common to us all, were subdued by his higher, heartfelt, godly desire, and so they did not conceive and give birth to sin, and therefore did not bring forth death. His desire was to please his Father. The moment Jesus died, the cosmic law of sin and death was being overturned to make way for a new cosmic law to come into effect, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that new cosmic law did not exist in Eden, wasn't there with Adam and Eve. It would occur only after Jesus rose from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit to give us the risen life of Jesus within and a new heart like his own. Our hearts can now be fulfilled with a new desire that freely chooses to fulfill the desires of God's heart. 
As Jesus hung on the cross and offered his spirit to his Father, his spirit left his dead body hanging on the cross. And he saw a bolt of lightning and Satan being caught in it and hurled downwards. Jesus had foretold this to his disciples on two occasions, saying, I saw Satan as lightning falling from heaven. It's in Luke chapter 10. And also, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to signify by what death he would die. That's in John chapter 12. Jesus also knew that before he ascended, he must first descend into the place of departed souls. And he began to travel downwards himself. And he knew he was on a mission of great purpose. Below him was a place called Paradise. And next to Paradise was a place called Hades. Thank you, Jesus, for overturning the law of sin and death and for giving to us the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. May we enter through that torn veil and live that life with your heart towards the Father. Amen. To be continued.